Why would George R. R. Martin make a bad product developer? Because he always seems to have trouble finishing his stories. Luckily for us, tonight's guest has no such problem. Speaking of stories, if you want someone to be part of yours or you want to be part of theirs, listen up. I've co-founded a new free mentoring platform called My Mentor Path, where product managers and product leaders can connect with each other and get the support they need to grow in their careers. We've just started running our matching algorithms, so if you want to be part of it, head over to MyMentorPath.com, where you can sign up to be a mentor, a mentee, or both. You can check out the show notes for more details. All right, so back to storytelling, which is a crucial part of any product manager's toolset, and something that tonight's guest says is one of the best ways to promote collaboration and cross-functional alignment. So let's all take our seats around the fire, blow the dust off the book, and listen carefully to the tale of the Chief Storytelling Officer on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Ronki Majakadumi. Ronki's a product leader, writer, mentor, and featured product school speaker who says she loves the magic of creating products. Ronki says the bravest thing she's ever done is go to London for a week, and she's currently reading eight books, hopefully not all at the same time. Ronki started out working at a makeup counter, but she's now trying her best to apply a strong foundation to product management practices, put filler in to smooth over the gaps between cross-functional teams, and hopefully not having to use too much concealer on her tech debt. Hi Ronki, how are you tonight? I'm great. How are you? Thank you for having me. No problem. It's good to have you here. And I do have to ask before we start, what is so scary about London? So London, it's not scary. London is a beautiful city. It's actually one of my favorite cities in the world. So what happened was I wanted to go to London so badly and none of my friends could go with me around the time I wanted to go. So I decided I wasn't going to wait for anybody. I was just going to go by myself. So I went to London for a whole week by myself. I flew in from Chicago, red eye. I took the train to Paddington Station by myself. I asked tons of directions. I was using an app and I, I had the best time. I stayed at a double tree near, uh, that faces the tower, uh, the tower bridge. And I just went sightseeing by myself. I mean, it was great. Nobody bothered me. Um, and I've done it since then. I've done it again by myself. So it was it was just that idea of going to a place that you've never been to before, a foreign city, and can you do it by yourself? I even went and saw a Broadway show, by the way, while I was there by myself. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, to be fair, I would have, or I did feel exactly the same when I went to Chicago. But I'll also say, frankly, Londoners never bother anyone. It's one of our most identifying characteristics. So you you, uh, you went to the right place for that. Anyway, so. You are the Director of Product Management for Promivo. So what problem is Promivo solving for the world? We are helping large, medium, small businesses and educators onboard everything from onboarding and offboarding their staff. So basically, we're helping them to manage and grow their business every day. So this is HR tech. Is that, is that the right bucket to put it in or...? It's a platform, yes, it's a platform for employees, uh, for you to onboard your employees and offboard your employees, but to apply policies, put them in a group, automate their onboarding, automate their offboarding and so forth. And with permission, uh, we, one of the things that makes us stand out is all the additional features that we have, which you won't find elsewhere. Like you can, you know, we have over 1000 permissions. So you can actually have one person who all they do is just onboard employees and they, that's all they do within the system. Oh, there you go. I remember my time in HR tech, it's always tricky to get into HR decision makers though and displace existing solutions. So I hope you've got a solution for that. 
But you're leading a product team there. Yes. And you came in after a few years at PayPal. Yes. And obviously, there's a temptation when you come from a, an established tech company like PayPal to come in all idealistic, my way or the highway. I know what I'm doing. I used to work at PayPal type vibe. Is that how you went into Promevo or did you have to kind of slipstream in or was there kind of somewhere in between that you had to pitch yourself to actually start to be successful at Promevo? I think you have to be in the middle as a product manager, right? As a product leader, no matter what organization you go to, whether it's a large organization, medium or small, even a startup, you have to be in the middle. You come in, you know, wanting to help make a difference. And that was always the thing for me. How do I make a difference? Yeah. But also understand that there's already a culture in every other, in every organization, right? You have to assimilate into that culture and, you know, assimilate into that culture, understand the decisions that were made, talk to the folks that were there because they have a historical context to the decisions that were made before you, before you then say, oh, how about this, right? I kind of, I think you kind of have to be in the middle. But do you start doing the how about this after a certain period of time or how does that go? Because you must have come with some pretty good ideas from PayPal, like the, scale of the company, the established practices that it had, like that you must have had some things that you sort of sat there and you're like, oh, I know we could do that. Oh, I did. I mean, I suggest ideas, right? As we kind of move on. But I also want to make sure that I understand. I do, I'm one of those people where I just don't shoot ideas just to shoot, you know, <laughs> provide ideas. I kind of want to understand what's going on first and why those decisions were made. And then I might say, oh, by the way, maybe we should consider this. So. There you go. Yeah. And that's sort of true for me in any organization that I work at, uh, that I go to work at. You really have to take the time to understand why certain decisions were made before you got there. Yeah. I think one of the things I've reflected on through my career is when you do turn up and you look at something, you go, well, that's not very good. And you start to maybe start to judge the people before you, probably quite unfairly, because probably you would have done exactly the same thing in their situation and given the context and the situation and the circumstances that are in. But it's just really easy to kind of walk in and just say, well, they, the old team must have sucked. And obviously, it's never quite as simple as that. Right. But so, and you're right. It's easy to do that, right? But one thing I always strive for is to provide lots of evidence, historical factor as to why I made certain decisions and why my product vision is what it is. Because I think as a product manager, you're, you are privileged, right? To be in a role where you get to build products for your customers. Yeah. So you, that you have that opportunity for just a limited amount of time, right? You, you, you're a shepherd, you're a shepherd to that product, but it's not forever. So I always ask myself at the end of the day, what evidence am I leaving for the next person who's going to come over and take over this role so that that person at least understands my thinking, where I was headed, and then they can make their own decisions, right? Cause they didn't come in. Yeah. They're going to change things around, but they should at least understand. Okay. For that time when Ronki Madrikadumi was the product manager on this product, here is what she here is the cards that she dealt with and here is the legacy that she left to me okay great i'm going to take it and go to something else with it no absolutely and hopefully get your name off of any of the incriminating documents where anything went wrong as well right (laughs) (laughs) you know what i take it all i think listen the good and the bad yeah because even don't forget even the bad even makes me a better person it makes me a better person a better leader a better product leader so i say bring it on the good and the bad (laughs) no absolutely but I was doing some background research, and obviously you've worked in product at a few places in your career, including PayPal, as we just said, LexisNexis that we were talking about just before this call. But one thing I found curious was some information that you provided around one point in your career where you got offered a larger salary for a new role. You took it, didn't ask questions, and then ended up having a bad experience. And 
I'm going to say that I've had buyer's remorse on job roles myself in the past. Like I know how that can be. But without lingering on the bad experience itself, what did that teach you about maybe some non-negotiable questions or things that you had to find out before you took a job after that? Uh, For starters, that experience taught me to run to an opportunity and not run from one. So that job, uh, before I took that job, I actually had a really great opportunity. I was I was working. I was a manager. I had five direct reports. I had a supportive team around me. My job was not in jeopardy. <laughs> I was actually making a difference. But I decided to run to this job for the wrong reasons, you know, for the money. Yeah. And I should have stopped. I should have asked questions. And so what I always tell aspiring product managers is, even if someone is offering you three times what you make, four times what you make, it doesn't matter. <laughs> always think at the end of the day, will I be happy there? Will I be able to make a difference there? Will my voice truly be heard there or will it be muted? In my case, my voice was muted. I didn't really have, I couldn't make decisions that I should be able to make as a product leader. So those are the questions to ask. But one fundamental thing for me at any organization I go to, is it product-led or is it engineering-led? There's a difference, right? Yeah. If it's product-led, it's a win-win for me because it means the customer can be the center of every single decision that we make. If it's an engineering-led, well, product customer, the customer's not the center, right, of every decision made. It could be, but the product leader doesn't have a say. My voice is not the one. I'm not the voice of the customer. So that's a deal breaker for me, really, for any organization I go to since I learned that lesson. It has to be product led because then I can kind of represent the customer. But no one's going to sit there in an interview and say, "Hey, Ronky, no, we we suck at that stuff, and the engineers are in control, like you know, Lord of the Flies or something like that." And yeah, you know, no one gets to do anything, and it's a feature factory, and everything's different to how you'd want it. Like no one's going to say that in an interview, right? So, are there kind of proxy questions or hints and kind of little things that you try to find out during an interview process to make sure that they are actually what you want? Yes. So I'm a firm believer in the box and the box methodology, which is designer, tech lead, and product. I like collaborating in that box environment. And one of the things I like to do is I like to make sure that when we do customer interviews, even if it's just a day in the life of a customer where we understand how a customer uses our product, I always like to make sure my partners are in the room with me, which is engineering and my tech lead. I mean, my tech lead and my designer. What I will say is this, if I work in an organization and the box is not feasible and my tech lead and my designer can't come to a meeting, that's your, that's your sign right there, right? And the reason you need that, you need that. And that's important because like I'll give you an example, an iPhone, right? The way I use an iPhone is going to be different culturally than the way you're going to use an iPhone. There's cultural impact in how I use my iPhone. Yeah. The only person that's going to know that is the designer, right? My tech lead needs to be able to ask questions of the customer, questions that I haven't asked so that he can truly understand what is the jobs to be done that they're trying to accomplish? Why are they logging into our platform to do this job? How can we make an impact in their day? And the only way he's going to be able to do that is to be in the room. He has to be in the room. And most importantly, empathy, empathy. I can't make you feel for the customer if you're not in the room, right? <laughs> so. If I, so that's one of the things I ask in interview questions is about the box methodology. And also I even ask to talk to them, to my tech lead. I always ask to meet with my engineering tech lead so I can kind of understand, is that person want to be in the room with a customer or do they just, you know, do, or are they going to say to me, no, record it and I'll listen to it later. Right. Yep. Yeah. Those are signs. Right. Because, and why that's so important is because if an engineer is in the room with a customer 
not only do they have empathy, they become changed, right? They get to see what that customer deals with every single day. And I no longer need to get their buy-in anymore. They're with me. They're galvanized. They understand why we must fix this problem. No, absolutely. Big fan of getting everyone in the room and breaking silos and all that good stuff. And I know we'll talk about that a bit in a minute in the context of storytelling as well. But on storytelling, I mean, you talked or we talked before this about the importance of storytelling in your product career, weaving a narrative and having that travel easily through cross-functional team members. And obviously, I agree with the concept, but I've got to say that not everyone's a natural storyteller. And before digging into that, I guess the question is, have you yourself always been a natural storyteller or is that some skill that you had to learn? That's a skill I had to learn. I had a designer that I worked with a long time ago in my career. who He literally looked at my presentation one day and said, I hate your presentation. <laughs> you oh, so he, he, he had good empathy skills as well then going. <laughs> hey, you know, he like, I listen, I appreciate anybody that lets me, that tells me the truth, right? Think about it. How many people tell you the truth, right? Yeah. Um, because they're afraid of hurting your feelings. You know, he literally told me, he's like, I hate your presentation. <laughs> and he helped <laughs> me tell a better story. And so that's when I started to realize that product leaders are chief storytellers. That's our job, right? Our job is to tell a story, to move you into an action, right? Uh, especially internally. But our job is to tell a story where the customer is using our product to solve a problem in their organization, and it's just in a B2B world. And that's where we win. If we can make our customers the hero in their company, that's where we win. Yeah. And again, I completely agree with that philosophy. But some people might sit there and say, well, you know, if we just want to get people aligned, we can just send out emails at the end of the week, you know, red, amber, green status reports and just you know, do do the bare minimum just because everyone's busy and who's got time to write a story anyway? And who's got time to read the story? And I'm obviously going to assume that you're not going to say that, but how do you kind of persuade people that maybe having more of a narrative around stuff rather than just facts and figures is something that's helpful for them? No, that's a good question. So number one, I always tell people this, you can throw all the numbers you want at me. I will not remember it. I won't remember <laughs> it, right? But if I'm in a room and you can walk me through the pain my customer feels, that stays with me. Yeah. Right? So I'll give you an example. The way I like to tell stories, again, that remember that three in a box designer tech, right? Yep. Is we so in some of the organizations I've worked at, uh, any experience that we've already that we're ready to build, right? We'll bring it to our leadership. But the way we tell the story goes like this. I will kick off the meeting and I will Remind everybody the core value of our organization, right? The core value of our organization is the thing that aligns all of us, right? The reason why we want to work for this company. But it's also it's important because that's where the love of our product comes from. So kind of start with that. I talk about the customer value and then I talk about the business value. Why would a customer care about this? What is the business value? But then I can't, and then I pass it to our designer. And then our designer was going to introduce the personas. This is Ronky. This is, Ronky's an admin here at this company. This is what her day-to-day looks like. Here's the job she's trying to do when she logs into our platform. And then he walks through the current experience. This is Ronky's journey when she logs into our platform. She's going to come to our dashboard. She's going to click on this. She's going to click on this. She's going to click on this. She's going to click on that. Oh, damn, now she has the report. He tells that story. This is the current journey. Then he then says, okay, now this is what we are recommending 
And then we walk through the new experience. And we tell that story for all, you know, it could be five personas, it could be four personas, but we tell that story with why they are coming into our platform. What is it that they're trying to do? And then we pass it on to our engineer. And our engineer will then bring up the MVP. Or in sometimes, it may not even be an MVP. It may literally be, be, be one thing, which is minimum lovable. And he'll bring it up and he'll talk about how, what it's going to take to build this. If he has to incur technical debt, no problem. He'll walk through what that technical debt will cost us and when we can resolve that technical debt, probably at the end of the year when we have moratorium. And then sometimes I bring in a data scientist who will help talk about our KPIs. How are we going to measure our success? But one thing I want to mention is all four of us, including that data scientist, if he's in the room, I've already met before the meeting. We've already gone through that experience and our story, and there's no daylight in our storytelling, right? So now when we present it to our leaders, what we've done, we've done three things. One, we've transformed them from Ronky's world, where she is right now, to what the world she could be in if we were to build that experience. And we've aligned with them that we, this is important, right? And thirdly, we've inspired them that we are trying to solve real problems for our customers. And so even if we can't build the North Star, we have the support of our leaders in that they'll go, okay, what are the resources do you need? But when they leave that room, they leave that room changed and transformed. And that is how you tell the story. It's interesting, as you were saying, I was thinking that there's kind of two ways to look at it. Obviously, one of which is the story itself is almost the, the game changer there, like something that you can use to spread stuff around and get people aligned. But at the same time, to some degree, almost it's the creation of the story cross-functionally, which also then helps to drive that alignment as well. So do you feel that it kind of gives you two for the price of one there? Like you're getting the benefit of both because as a team, you're building this stuff together, but then you've got something that you can then inspire people with afterwards. Absolutely. And it's not even just that, right? Because then you know what else happens? My designer is going to go into a meeting on a Thursday and meet with all the designers in his org, and he's going to show that experience and they're going to ask him questions. I don't need to be in the room. The story's traveling. Do you see that? Yep. My engineering lead, he's going to go have a one-on-one with his manager at some point during the week. I don't have to be in the room. The story travels, right? And then same thing with my data scientist. Now, I also wanted to mention, if I, I also have other cross-functional partners, right? Like risk, policy, legal. If they're in the room, I don't have to be there when they talk to their leadership and their teams. You see how the story travels, all with that experience. And I just provide it to them at the end. So in terms of cross-collaboration, it, yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's a lot of cross-collaboration and it helps to tell our story together. And now we know, okay, what problems we're solving for the customer, but most importantly, how does it tie to the core value and the mission and vision of our organization? And we're all aligned. Yeah, I think that mission and vision thing is interesting, actually, because one exercise I like to do when I go into companies is, or at least to try to get them to do is sort of start from the CEO and go all the way down through the organization to like the lowest person on the notional corporate ladder and try and find out how many different stories there are, like how many different opinions that there are of what the company does or what the company's for or what the strategy is and all of that stuff. And obviously, even in pretty small companies, you can find quite a lot of disconnects and people thinking that the story is different. So it kind of sounds that what you're trying to do is to some extent address that as well, right? To make sure that basically the entire company can rally around something, which is obviously, and I agree with you, like this chief storytelling officer type thing, something that all PMs should strive for. Absolutely. And it shouldn't matter, by the way, who you are. If you're in tech support, 
if you're in customer success, account management, you should be able to tell that story. Exactly. You should be able to exactly. You should be able to say to a customer, "Oh, this new feature is coming out. Here's how it differentiates us from the market." Oh, by the way, we have a focus group. We have a customer advisory board. We've done a day in the life. We know what you're trying to do. We got you covered. But you should be able to tell that story. So I'm a big fan of galvanizing the whole entire organization in storytelling. Uh, absolutely. But a lot of product managers love frameworks or canvases or all these other sort of jumping off points or ways to get them started. And some people might sit there and sniff at canvases and say, well, you know, that's just a lazy person's way of doing product management and it's not going to do all your work for you. Other people are going to say, as I often do, that they're a good starting point to get you thinking and asking the right questions. But when it comes to then building those stories, aside from the kind of cross-functional collaboration that you've just been talking about, are there any approaches or kind of frameworks that you do use for that? Or is it literally just you and all of your friends sitting around a typewriter typing there once upon a time and off you go? No, absolutely. Uh, great question. So um, I love Jira. You're the only one. You must be the only person that loves yeah, that's Jira. Like <laughs> I do love Jira. Asana's really great also, by the way. I just want to give, give a shout out to Asana if they're listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> no, Asana's also really good. I just want to give a shout out there. But what I was going to mention is with the way I write stories, I like Jira's owned by Alassian. Alassian has a medium article that they put out a, a long, long time ago that recommends how you should write a story. And I actually prefer to write it from the persona's point of view. So usually a story would go something like this. As a admin, I want to be able to change the phone number of my secondary, of my, of my employee, right? And then you write your sequence criteria. It is complete when I can change the, you know, I can log into the system, go to the profile, pull up the profile of my employee. And it is complete when I can change the name. It is complete when there's a report that meant that provides me details as to the time and date that I changed the employee's name. It is complete when, you know, blah, 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 and on and on. And, you know, for the engineering team, it is complete when there's instrumentation to track this stuff. I actually prefer to write it in the personas, from that persona's point of view, because what it also drives is empathy for the engineer that's working on the story. No, absolutely. But speaking of stories, you shared some stories before this call about your career and this is maybe a slightly less aspirational one. And to paraphrase, you had some senior stakeholders in a previous job who ignored your advice, cheated you out of your bonus and told you to, air quotes, dress like an executive. And then later you said, I guess after the fact that you had proof that this was also racially motivated, which obviously adds an additional layer of horror to all that situation. And it has inspired you to, again, in your words, run your race on your terms. Now, obviously, I don't want to trigger your PTSD and go through all of the awful parts of that situation. But in the spirit of positivity, what does running your race on your own terms translate to in practical terms? Sure. So I just want to correct one thing. He told me that, that I dress too nice and that I, <laughs> that I dress like an executive and I'd rather I'd not do that. So just to clarify that. Oh, he wants you not to dress like an executive. Not to dress nice. Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> dress too nice for Interesting. work. I know. <laughs> so for me, running my own race means means that I'm going to be myself. I'm going to be my authentic self. My authentic self means when I wake up every single morning, I there's the alarm clock test for me of what I'm going to be today part of somebody's story. Today, Jason, I'm part of your story, right? You're part of my story. Yep. What is that going to be like? There is the mirror test at night, right? Before I go to bed, did I make a difference today in somebody's life? Did I make a difference in the world today to a perfect stranger, right? 
that's what I mean by running my story. I'm just going to be my authentic self. And hopefully, hopefully, I am by doing what I do with my product talks, my blogs, I am able to make a difference in someone's life. And that's a product manager out there who can see me and see that a woman of personal color like me can be a product manager, can be a chief product officer and shatter the glass ceiling. At the end of the day, if I can just, you know, impart a little bit of knowledge there and help somebody in their journey, my job is done. So that's what I mean by running my, my, my own race. But it's interesting though, because obviously I got the story wrong marginally, but when you're talking about being yourself and obviously, you know, running your own race your own way, like actually in a lot of situations, being yourself is kind of seen as tricky because you know, you, you go in and people expect you to talk or look or act a certain way. And if you answer back or, you know, there's obviously all these cliches and horror stories you see of like, for example, black people in the workplace getting, especially black women in the workplace getting called out for being pushy or, or whatever, and being judged in ways that white men like me don't get judged. Like, do you feel in general that being yourself when you are yourself is something that sometimes gets some of those prejudiced reactions that maybe you encountered in the past and, and obviously are going to then at best limit you, but at worst offend you and, and, and insult you? So that's a really good question. Um, in my experience, I think, it's, I think it starts from the leadership. If the leadership wants to create an environment where there's equality, but also there's diversity, inclusion, and then the key recipe for that is belonging. It doesn't matter if you have diversity or inclusion, right? But if I don't feel like I belong there, I'm not going to stay, right? I'm going to leave. Right. So to me, that starts from the top, from the top, and then kind of flows down. I've been in those situations where just asserting myself or being assertive, uh, because I'm a woman of color, it's seen as being angry. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) You know? Yeah. You know, that's the code, right? You're an angry black woman. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or... You know, or you're, you're, you know, you're an angry black woman or you're the B word, right? Yeah. But what I also find in organizations where those things aren't allowed, it starts from the top. It really does. It starts from the top, from the tone, from the get-go. I've been lucky that I've worked in organizations where the CEO, there's one particular organization I worked at where the CEO literally starts every single town hall talking about diversity, inclusion, and belonging, right? Every single conversation, he starts with that. And then I've been in organizations where it's not even talked about, right? So, but I think one thing I drive home is this, okay? If you're building a product for an emerging demographic, there's 8 billion people in the world. The demographic is changing every single day, right? The way you're going to meet, the way to meet them where they are, to find out what they need is you need people in your organization that looks like you diverse. They are just diverse. They need to have. Di- they need to be diverse in gender. They need to be diverse in lived experiences. They need to be diverse in circumstances. They need to just come from diverse environments because they have diverse perspectives that you need to build a product for an emerging demographic, right? Yeah. So, and also that emerging demographic is more inclusion focused every day. They are looking at the people that are building their products and going, "Do you look like me?" Right. So from a revenue aspect, your teams and your cross-functional teams should be diverse because that's how you're going to build innovative products, not just for today, but for tomorrow, right? So if you know that, then diversity, inclusion, belonging, equality should be like part of your core value, right? 
And those old ideas of a woman of color speaking up and, you know, and explaining her thoughts should not be, oh my God, she's an angry black woman. A man of color should be able to speak his mind without being, oh my God, he's being aggressive and angry. Don't forget, there's also that side too, right? With a man of color. Yeah. Where men of color have to be really calm when they expect, when they explain something at work because, you know, it might be seen as, oh my God, they're angry. All those old ideas, the ideas of a woman being too powerful, right? Oh my God, you know, yeah. All those old ideas, it really starts from the top. I'm just going to give an example of one company that I really like what they're doing, Salesforce. Salesforce had as a business insider article yep. that, they, that they were in not too long ago, where part of their KPIs for everybody in their organization, which includes their CEO, Bernie, is they must hire, retain, and promote from marginalized communities. Hire, retain, and promote. Because they understand that when I'm in an interview, if I see people who look like me, I'm going to want to work there. They know that when I start there, if I see people who look like me in their executive level, I'm going to want to work there. So baby steps, but we're getting there. It starts from the top. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I've certainly seen some bad examples at the top, which maybe I'll tell you offline. (laughs) But you also talked about imposter syndrome and how that intersects with race. And that really reminds me of a chat I had a few months back with the author of a book about imposter syndrome, uh, Phyllis Jirogi, who herself is a woman of color and said that imposter syndrome is bad enough when it's coming from within, you know, the internal imposter syndrome that a lot of people have to a certain extent, but that underrepresented people are also being, in many cases, almost explicitly told that they are imposters and that they don't belong by obviously the prejudiced society in which we live in. And is that something that resonates with your experience and any imposter syndrome that you've experienced in your career? So thankfully, I have not had anybody look at me and say I didn't belong (laughs) where I was. Thankfully, I haven't had that. My imposter syndrome was more about when I first started out as a product manager, there weren't all these resources. I kind of had to figure everything out myself. I I didn't even... Listen, my first job as a PM, I was even afraid to make decisions. (laughs) Um, I was. I was afraid to make decisions. And so that was sort of where my imposter syndrome came from is that sense of why am I in this room? I'm not smart enough to be in this room, right? Yeah. That's sort of where it was for me was, and then it took me some time to figure out, I had honestly had to work on my own SWOT analysis, right? Strength, weakness, opportunities, and threats to figure out what it is that made me feel that way and kind of deal with it. But at the end of the day, what I realized was it was just about transparency. I needed to be able to share with my cross-functional teams all these things that went into my decision making so that they can then I can galvanize them and they can support me. But one most important thing I always tell us Brian product manager, it is a we job. It is a we job. It's a job about humans. If you offer transparency equals trust, right? Yeah. So that meant for me taking my sales pipeline, sharing with the engineering team and say, these are the prospects that didn't pick us. Here's why they didn't pick us, because we didn't have these features. Taking the retention pipeline, these are the customers who resigned with us. These are the customers that didn't resign with us because we didn't have a certain feature, right? So now that that offering that transparency then now goes into them understanding why the roadmap looks the way that it does, right? So now I'm building credibility. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So that sense of, I don't belong here. Oh my God, I'm a fake starts to go away because I'm sharing everything I know. and also. 
I'm, I'm inviting them into my world to help me make some of those decisions, right? So my engineering team might say to me, you know what, Rocky, let's do a bug bash. When we do a bug bash, can you create stories, those stories, those five, three stories or whatever, and we'll knock them out as part of bug bash. But you see how now the narrative has changed, right? Uh, absolutely. Well, it's good to know that you've not been excluded explicitly anyway, because, you know, that's something I think that happens to far too many people. It obviously doesn't help when you already feel that you're not necessarily smart enough to be in the room. So Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah, so that's good motivation for people. And I guess ultimately we try and need to help everyone understand that they probably should be in the room. They wouldn't be anywhere near the room if they shouldn't be in the room, right? Exactly. But also we need them in the room because guess what? That's how we're going to build those innovative products that are going to continue to change the world. We need everybody's ideas, right? We do. You know, I, I can't build it all by myself, right? <laughs> <laughs> so That's your imposter syndrome talking again. Exactly. I can't do it all myself, right? I mean, look at COVID. Look at COVID, for instance, right? But do you, can you imagine one thing that, that just, I was so taken aback by it was, I would go get my Pfizer, whenever you went to go get your Pfizer shot or Moderna, they were handing you a card, a physical card, right? I'm like, come on, we are like, I'm like, you're telling me no private sector could have created an app, <laughs> right? An app that could have, all they had to do was scan the bottle and it would have all that information, including the lot number. Right now in my wallet, I still have a card that has all my shots in <laughs> the days that I took them. Now, imagine if the private sector, someone had created an app. That app via API would have fed into my American Airline app so that when I was going to Europe, they would know I was vaccinated. Oh, yeah. God forbid something happened to me while I was in Europe. The doctor would see all the shots I've had. And I just thought, wow, how uh, did no one come up with that? <laughs> so anyway, so we need ideas. Next sprint, next sprint. Next sprint, exactly. Hopefully not before the next pandemic. <laughs> but anyway, no, but yeah, but we need, we need ideas. We need innovative ideas. So, No, absolutely. It's, uh, it's where all the good stuff comes from. But where can people find you after this if they want to share some ideas with you or chat with you about storytelling or the magic of product management or see if they can get any makeup tips from your days back in the store? I know, I still can't believe you remember that. <laughs> yes, everybody. I My first corporate job was actually working at Macy's, putting makeup on people. <laughs> I'm going to say that. That doesn't sound like my kind of job, but uh, I'm sure it was fun at the time. <laughs> uh, it was the job I was doing before I could find my real PM job. So anyway. There you go. I am on ronkypm.com. That's R-O-N-K-E-P-M.com. I am on LinkedIn. Uh, on the site, you'll find my LinkedIn information my instagram information of course my twitter and uh facebook as well but yes yeah and also you can also send me a message via my website as well you are very accessible well i'll make sure to link that all into the show notes and yeah hopefully you get a few people heading your direction and trying to find out more well that's been a fantastic chat so obviously really glad you could spend some time and share some stories with us hopefully we can stay in touch but yeah as for now thanks for taking the time it's been so lovely thank you so much for having me as always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com, check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favourite podcast app and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night. <laughs>